Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. and welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies. I'm your host, Ian Cook. Today we're talking about the politics of economic restructuring in India, economic governance and state spatial rescaling by Lorraine Kennedy. The book is published by Rutledge. Lorraine is a research director at the French National Centre for Scientific Research in Paris. The book is, I think, a really important book and will be an important book in years to come because it's a real fine-grained and nuanced analysis of the way that the state is rescaling in response to the economic reforms which have been ongoing for the last few decades in India. It really is a well-written, clearly argued book, and I had the pleasure of talking with Lorraine a short while before. So without any further ado, it gives me great pleasure to welcome Lorraine to the show. Thanks a lot for coming on. You're welcome, Ian. Right. And really, thanks a lot for your book. I really enjoyed reading it. It really was, um, I think it's a very important book and a very timely book. And um, But before we get to the book itself, I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit about yourself, your past research, and uh, how this fed into the current book. Uh, okay, well, I'm based in uh, France. I'm at the CNRS, which is the French National uh, Scientific Research uh, Centre. And I'm... Um, I'm based at the École des Hautes Études en Sciences Sociales, so that's a graduate school in social science research in Paris, and I'm at the Center for South Asian Studies. Um, over the years, I've I've looked at this the, the issues of of you know I guess what we call often center state relations in in policy making, and um, I've done research in in different parts of the country, starting in Kerala uh, back in the early 90s, and then Tamil Nadu. Andhra Pradesh, and then most recently, Haryana. And uh, I think this book just allows me to kind of bring together this this research that's, that I carried out over almost 20 years and uh, and to, to look at it through the lens of um, state restructuring and, and the politics of, of economic uh, governance. So so that was that was the aim. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and it, you can really tell this from the book that you've had a very long engagement with the topic, and and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at India as well. I mean, you're referring often back to your you know doctoral research in Kerala in the I think in the 90s and and, and so on. And like, so this is this is really nice that we're getting this uh, this historical perspective there. So in the book itself, you're looking at the. Yeah, the changing nature of economic governance in India since the instigation of, of these economic reforms, which are often called economic liberalization or sometimes the opening up of the economy or neoliberalism, many different words to describe it. And your main argument that you're looking at, it, your main argument is basically that the subnational scales are extremely important for understanding how economic governance in India is taking place. And this is explored throughout the six chapters in various ways. But I thought before we turn to these different aspects of it, we need to unpick a few of the key concepts and theories that you use to to frame your analysis. And you do this in chapter one. So I suppose the most important one is state spatial rescaling. There's also territorialization. And you explore how these are different from decentralization and and what these theories, which are Western-derived theories, what they can tell us about the Indian case and what they can't tell us. So I was wondering if you can start by giving us these, talking us through these these concepts and theories that you're using. 
Sure. Um, well, I would agree that, you know, um, the, the, the main kind of the central sort of uh, theoretical framework that I, that I mobilize in this book is the um, theory of state spatial rescaling. Um, now, this body of literature is, is primarily interested in the, in the spatial forms of, of capitalist restructuring. And as you mentioned, um, primarily based on European and, and North American examples, um, with what's called North Atlantic uh, capitalism. Um, so it's a so it's a neo-Marxist theory um, that emerged out of um, radical geography, um, starting you know as early as um, as the 1980s around David Harvey, for instance, um, and Eric Swingado. Um, more recently, uh, Neil Brenner especially has um, contributed to to building up this theory and and. Um, and more recent scholarship, I think, has, has moved away to, 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 to a degree from the maybe a more structuralist approach uh, and emphasizes kind of historically unique political societies and, and, and state formations. Um, now, one of the you know, central hypotheses in this, in this body of, of literature is that each phase of capitalism is rooted in particular forms of territorial organization um, that is socially produced geographical infrastructures uh, that facilitate capital investment and accumulation. Now, the theory focuses on how nation states primarily are adapting their state structures to uh, enhance, you know, competition uh, within their within their territories. Um, so the idea is that, and I think this is very important, um, is that the nation state is, is not retreating, but is being redeployed through, you know, restructured territorial organization. And so, so what, what we have here is a reference to um, a change in the territorial frame of reference in policymaking, in economic policymaking primarily. That's what I'm focused on in, in this book. Um, now, restructuring can take the form of scaling up, um, for instance, through... Um, supranational, you know, trading blocks or, or multi, multilateral agreements. I mean, often, you know, the EU is, uh, the, the European Union is, is used as an example, but also the World Trade Organization. Um, but there's also scaling down, uh, which involves devolving responsibilities to local and, and regional territorial state institutions, um, but not necessarily state institutions. This can also be a, a kind of scaling down to uh, ad hoc specialized agencies. And I explore that example um, in, in the book as well. Um, now, in the literature, uh, the rescaling literature, um, the, the, the main focus seems to be on, you know, rescaling to urban spaces in particular. And um, the idea being that in the current round of, of capitalist restructuring, uh, urban spaces are, you know, the key nodes for capital accumulation. And states seek to equip these local spaces to better engage with, with local markets, uh, for instance, through um, state, uh, what we call a space-based policy tools. And I examine these um, in, in several chapters of the book. Uh, space-based uh, just re refers to the fact that, that uh, these are like supply-side policy measures, um, for instance, uh, to develop specialized infrastructure for instance, a, plat a platform for exports. Um, and these kinds of initiatives usually target specific types of places, 
metropolitan regions, for instance, or coastal areas. Again, these policies um, seek to equip local spaces to, to better engage with, with the global economy. So that's, um, that's for the rescaling um, a theory. Now, with regard to territorialization, which, which is also present in that theory, I, I mainly uh, was inspired by uh, French scholarship, um, which draws on political geography. Uh, the idea being that uh, territorialization is a process of appropriating space, space with, an with an intention to, you know, control people and activities uh, therein. And in the book, I'm, I'm interested in um, the conditions under which India's subnational states are becoming increasingly salient political territories. In other words, uh, as the regional boundaries become a more relevant scale for organizing both political and economic activities. Um, but I, you know, I want to insist on the idea that um, this process of, you know, kind of political uh, decentralization is not predetermined and, um, and, you know, it's, it's a contested process also. Um, this follows on the idea of, you know, what, what rescaling theory calls the political economy of scale. Um, now, it stands to reason uh, that in India with the, you know, with the great, you know, kind of ethnic, linguistic uh, and, and regional economic diversity, um, that this process would, um, you know, be varied across, across space. Uh, space. Um, you know, one example, of course, is, is uh, political formations. Um, as you as we know, not all states have seen the emergence of regional political parties. And, and likewise, you know, caste-based um, mobilization varies also across, across states. Um, so it's important to have a kind of a historical uh, perspective, you know, when we're talking about these territorialization processes. Um, now, both of these processes, rescaling and territorialization, have to be distinguished from decentralization. And I think, in a way, this is one of the really attractive uh, features of the rescaling theory, is that it allows us to move away from this idea of uh, decentralization or, or recentralization, which is also taking place. Um, so, so, you know, maybe just a word about, you know, how these theories, you know, fit with the, you know, the Indian case. Um, I argue that that uh, this framework is compelling to explain, you know, processes underway, um, and and that we can observe. Um, however, it is important to maintain a, a critical distance for the for the reasons that you mentioned, uh, namely that uh, the theory has mainly been developed out of uh, focus on, you know, North Atlantic uh, uh, countries and uh, and economies, and. Um, and so it, it's important to kind of, I think, downplay uh, the influence of the kind of macro structural um, factors, you know, such as capitalist crisis and, and focus more on, you know, state agency um, and also non-state agency. Um, so, I mean, as, as you know, I mean, capitalism in India cannot be characterized as Fordist and, uh, and likewise, India has never had a what could be called a welfare state. 
I mean, certainly a developmental state, but uh, but not a welfare state. So whereas state rescaling is, is usually portrayed as, as a defensive strategy in the West, I argue that uh, India, uh, you know, uses rescaling primarily in an offensive uh, manner, or, or at least rescaling appears as an offensive kind of a strategy um, for engaging with, with global, with the global economy. You know, whereas in, in, in Europe, uh, rescaling might be associated with sacrificing social gains, uh, you, you know, in the case of India, um, this, this is an empirical question that I think uh, really merits some careful attention is to, to what extent, you know, rescaling um, leads to a deterioration of, of, you know, social conditions of work, for instance, or the environment. Um, but just to, to finish on that point, I, I, I think that uh, the Indian case is, is, is really interesting because we also observe that rescaling can be combined with an expansion of social welfare policies. In recent years, in the last 10, 15 years, of course, India's had very strong growth. And, um, and this has, you know, been, uh, we, we've seen, you know, health insurance schemes um, and uh, employment guarantee schemes and this kind of thing. So this is this is certainly a contrast with uh, with the rescaling literature uh, based on on Europe. Mm-hmm. Well, that's wonderful. Thanks for that. I mean, I've I've read some of this rescaling literature, and very often it you get lost in the jargon, especially Brenner and so on. And but uh, this was a wonderful uh, wonderful talk through it, especially for me who often gets lost um, when going through the words. So let's um, let's turn now to more specifically to think about about India and especially its political institutions. I mean, I guess we need to understand how India's federal structure works, um, uh, what it is and also how it functions before we can really understand how the rescaling takes place. Um, yes, I, I think it is important to, um, to, to, to pay close attention to uh, political institutions uh, when you're talking about economic reforms because, you know, reforms... Um, are implemented through existing institutions at the same time that they, you know, contribute to, to shaping institutions through the, the types of, you know, incentive structures that they, they put in place, for instance. Um, so, yeah, I insist in the book on the fact that India's federal system forms the, the key infrastructure, institutional infrastructures for understanding economic governance. And um, as I've defined economic governance in the book, it, it refers to, the institutions and actors who shape the processes that coordinate economic activities. Um, you know, these include, you know, markets, bureaucracies, but also informal networks of, of various kinds. Um, now, the 1950 uh, Constitution, um, you know, put in put in place, you know, the the, the basic features of, of India's federal system without ever mentioning uh, the word federal, of course, uh, which, is, which is a peculiarity of, of India's uh, um, federal system. Um, it, it's, it's usually considered to be quite a centralized uh, federal model. Um, and this, this is, uh, you know, based on the fact that, for instance, the major tax powers are, are with the center, um, but also uh, a number of, of provisions which which reinforce the powers of the center and allow, for instance, uh, um, president's rule, which is which allows the the, the central government to to basically um, uh, 
take over uh, everyday government in in a state if if it uh, considers that the law and order situation uh, has has deteriorated uh, to a point that the constitution cannot be um, um, implemented. Uh, and so over the years, you know these um, the, these constitutional provisions have have been you know, mediated through politics. And I think that's also something that, that's important is that these political institutions are not fixed, you know, static once and, and for all. Um, it was really, you know, India's peculiar federal system has been defined over the years through political practice. And, you know, as political competition has increased uh, in recent decades, there has been, you know, to a degree, a, a decentering of, uh, of political power. And I argue that that India's you know federal governance has has undergone very significant change in the last you know twenty years or so um, through the combined effect of, of both economic reforms, uh, which have have decreased considerably um, the the centralized management of the economy, and and also through political development. And I think that's important that this is not a a, a kind of a mechanical effect of the economic reforms, but but a gradual, you know, process over you know decades of um, what's often called the deepening of, of India's democracy. Um, we certainly have uh, um, uh, varying examples of uh, uh, of you know political development, and I think you know, we hopefully we'll get a chance to come back to that, to that topic. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, the, the, so the, the broad context for your book is, is, is this economic um, um, reforms, which often are, are pinpointed at starting in, in 1991. This is the sort of supposed event, which, uh, which uh, often people say triggered, triggered the reforms. And certainly it's a political and very hotly debated um, topic in India, but your reading of eco- India's economic liberalization is, is slightly different from this. So could you tell us a little bit more about how you understand these changes taking place and how this differs from this? Well, you're right that this is this is very hotly debated still today. Um, you know, really the purpose of this chapter, and this is chapter three, was to, to really um, try to place India's economic reforms firmly within uh, the realm of politics um, to insist that that reforms are not just um, you know technical um, this is not just about the IMF uh, loan and the, and, the, and the IMF conditionalities um, but it is first and foremost a, a political process that is um, you know rooted in in India and um, I think it's important to you know, to have a nuanced discussion about this, um, I certainly do not deny that there were strong external constraints, you know, that that actually led to the decision in uh, 1991, for instance, to, um, you know, to implement um, the, the structural adjustment uh, reforms. I mean, there was, uh, objectively speaking, a very dire kind of uh, political a financial crisis, a balance of payment crisis, and, and debt. Um, but the exogenous factors alone cannot explain the depth of, uh, nor the duration of, of the reform process. As, as other scholars have, have also argued, um, 
I, I emphasize that, that India's political elites are driving the reform process and that it's linked to a wider uh, process of political change in the country, as well as to globalization processes too. Um, in this chapter, I, I draw primarily on secondary sources, um, you know, including um, Devesh Kapoor's work on, on India's US-based diaspora, uh, Rob Jenkins and Ashtush Varshney's uh, work on um, the politics of, of reforms and Yos Moy. Um, the idea is, is, to, is to show that there is continuity, uh, for instance, among even the individuals in the bureaucracy uh, throughout the 1980s and 1990s. And um, we, we know that, that, that informal institutions, um, for instance, networks of influence, uh, played, a, played a crucial role uh, as politicians at, at different levels, both state level and, and central level, um, negotiated and, and tried to build coalitions in support of, of reforms. Um, so, so really, you know, my major uh, critique with the position that, that reforms were, were imposed from the outside is that, that it removes the reforms from the political arena. Uh, it, it, it amounts to, you know, India had no choice in the matter. And um, and the problem is that this locates responsibility for policies and outcomes outside the realm of Indian politics. And I think by bringing them back in, recognizing uh, that they are, you know, so political, it means that they can be contested and through a political process. And uh, I'll just make a quick parallel. Um, this this is also there's another kind of dominant narrative. Uh, in, in India, which which I allude to uh, in the book, which is that you know the new economic geographies that that are emerging and that we're seeing in India are the result of impersonal market forces. That because of the reforms, um, market forces now are uh, you know determining allocations, and uh, and this is why we see the patterns we do. And there again, we don't see that there is strategy, and we don't see that there's agency. <laughs> Thanks for that. Thanks for that. And, and so, within yeah the context of these reforms, you you look at uh, in chapter four, you look at how how states have been, I suppose, modifying their relations to space and territory in in different ways. And you look at this through two with the examples of two different states, and you argue that there's promotional policies and fiscal restructuring, and these are basically two of the ways in which this relation is being. Um, is is being modified. So I was wondering if you could talk us through these ideas and how these play out in the two different states that you examine. Well, um, you know, my my main argument, as you say, is that um, that that we are seeing greater, you know, state level um, autonomy and agency than in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, and what and you know, again, I'm. I'm mainly looking at economic development uh, policies and not the whole realm of, of, of uh, you know, public policy. But um, in, the, in the realm of economic development, uh, we see that these states have um, more tools at their disposal for uh, shaping capital accumulation. For instance, um, and, and maybe I should say a word about this, um, until, until the, the early 1990s, the central government, um, through the light, you know, what's often referred to as the license permit Raj, um, directly uh, controlled 
industrial investments in the country and their physical location. Um, and state governments, you know, could to some degree, uh, you know, participate, negotiate. Um, but but many states took a rather passive attitude and um, and did not really develop their own you know economic development strategies and and um, this changed rather quickly after reforms um, after the reforms of the early 1990s where uh, you know we could observe that that rather quickly similar types of you know what I call promotional uh, policies were put in place. This is. This is about um, simplifying, you know, rules to start businesses. It's about tax holidays. Um, it's it's about shaping through both direct public investments, for instance, uh, you know, infrastructure in uh, the form of energy and, and transport, but also through, you know, regulations, um, inspections, um, the kind of... Uh, um, the way that labor disputes are handled. Um, this, this all can, you know, these all contribute to uh, putting in place a kind of an investment climate, and uh, and and states are much more engaged in this than they than they were in the past. And what we're observing in particular, one very powerful tool is land, and um, of course this is this too is extremely controversial in the way in which. Um, Many state governments are, are are trying to build up land banks by by acquiring forcibly acquiring land, uh, which then they then make uh, available to investors. Um, now, uh, in this in this chapter, I tried to to sort of you know examine this comparatively, looking at different states, um, how they you know were reacting to this this kind of new policy space, you know. Um, Again, th this is not about decentralization. It's not because the central government uh, stopped, um, you know, directing uh, where industrial investments would be uh, set up. Uh, but it was a kind of an opportunity that some states, you know, seized upon and, and others have been perhaps a little um, less kind of proactive. Um, but, but the point is that uh, there's also varying capacity at the at the subnational level to seize these opportunities it's not just about you know um uh being proactive it, it's also what kind of resources a state has at uh at its at, at its disposal um obviously the the size of the state of the the, the regional economy its growth rate uh is, is important um its revenue receipts uh determined to a to a large degree what it's able to uh, put in place in terms of its own, you know, policies, um, the amount of its debt, uh, also, and and here too, you know, politics plays a role, and I think it, it it's important to have a multi-scalar approach and and not just focus on the regional scale when we're looking at state level capacity, but also to to analyze the relationship that the state has with uh, with New Delhi, with the central central state. Um, we know that these, you know, political relations uh, are important. And I mean, to take one example, the the size of the deficit that that a state is allowed to run, uh, to some degree, is within the discretion of the of the central government. So, so there you see where you know political relations are 
are very important. Um, but as you mentioned, you know, they're, they're not just the, the promotional types of policies. We, we have seen that several states have taken up what's usually called, you know, structural reforms or second generation reforms. And of course, these are much more difficult to, to implement politically speaking. Um, I, I developed in the, in, in chapter four, the, uh, the examples of Odisha and uh, Andhra Pradesh to contrast them, showing that although you know Odisha is, is often considered to be kind of a uh, you know a model state in terms of the the reforms that that have been adopted there, um, I argue that they these were adopted under under heavy constraints. I mean, uh, objectively uh, speaking, there was a very uh, like high percentage of, of public debt to a state domestic product and, um, and interest payments were, were 30% of its income in, in the early two thousands. Um, and, and so really the state was, was under, you know, heavy pressure, uh, to, to adopt structural, structural reforms. Um, and this was, I contrasted this to the case of Andhra Pradesh, which, which also adopted, you know, structural reforms, uh, in, you know, the late 90s under uh, Chandrababu Naidu, and this was the, the Telugu Desam uh, party uh, was ruling in the, in the state. And what I argued is, is you know, certainly there were, uh, you know, financial, um, you know, constraints to a degree, but, but, that the, but that the state government exert, exerted a lot more control over the process uh, than in the case of, of reform. And and in part, this was um, there were social and, and political factors that that helped to explain this. Um, for one thing, Andhra Pradesh has a rather highly mobilized economic elites um, who were probably you know favorable to uh, reforms. Certainly, they they uh, stood to to benefit from from some of the reforms. Um, the two, you know. Um, Parties, main parties that that alternate power in, in the state, or until recently, anyway, uh, TDP and, and and Congress were rather stable uh, coalitions. So, um, so so that too might explain that that the, the state government could could take these kind of bold uh, bold reforms. Also, um, we shouldn't neglect the fact that that the Andhra Pradesh uh, state government had very good relations with with the central government. In the um, in the late '90s, um, the the TDP had given outside support to the uh, you know the NDA uh, coalition in in Delhi, um, and and that definitely gave the state government some leverage vis a vis vis a vis Delhi. <laughs> so so here, I mean, we can we can see that there there really are you know contrasting sort of. Uh, uh, cases across India, and 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 it's really necessary to to look at that state's specific kind of regional political economy in order to understand just you know how far they've gone with reforms and and the extent to which they have been you know actors of those reforms. Mm-hmm. And you, I mean, we're talking now about Andhra Pradesh, and you. You you talk in the in the final chapter then a little bit about about Hyderabad, but um, before we go there, we'll we'll talk. Uh, well, let's let's ask a little bit about what you talk about in chapter five, which is about special economic zones. I suppose if if economic reforms are a politically um, contested, um, yeah, um, 
arena, then special economic zones are especially um, politically contested. They're um, yeah, local mobilizations as well as as well as sort of national debates. So I was wondering before we get there, tell us a little bit about the what's and when's of what special economic zones are in India or SEZs, I guess we should call them, um, and how this policy, which is interesting because as you point out in the chapter, it's, it's a national policy, it's a national scale, but certainly this is one which has um, regional implications and it very much is, is bound up within rescaling as well. Yeah, quite right. And uh, I, I think this is uh, this would explain why, uh, you know, special economic zones have really uh, been implemented so differently across national territory. Well, just to back up, um, yeah, uh, special economic zones are not a new kind of policy tool in India. In fact, in the 1960s, uh, India was one of the first countries in the world to have um, an export processing zone uh, policy. Um, but this, but the policy never really uh, had, you know, deep importance, or at least never really represented represented a you know a, a, a substantial proportion of, of India's exports. And um, in order to to really examine today's SEZ policy, it probably makes more sense to to look at what happened after two thousand. Um, in 2000, uh, the, there was a BG, BJP-led uh, uh, coalition in, uh, uh, in, in New Delhi, I mean, running the, the national government. And the Commerce ministry, Minister at the time traveled to China and um, on his return announced that, uh, that uh, India, too, would have a, a kind of special economic zone policy. So they're using uh, really the, the term uh, of the China has used and um, loosely, I'd say, inspiring uh, the policy uh, from from the Chinese case. Uh, when you look closely, you realize that there are really some very fundamental differences. Um, but whatever the case, um, these SEZs, um, they 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 mainly the the main difference compared to the earlier uh, export processing zones is that they were supposed to um, include, or they could include in theory, all facilities um, of an industrial township. So for instance, housing, uh, social infrastructure, in the form of schools and hospitals. Um, so we see here that, that, that really these could uh, become actually you know, cities in and of themselves. And um, so, so that actually uh, is why the, the Special Economic Zone Act um, insists heavily on um, the, 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 the aspect of developing the zones themselves. So, so a key objective was to attract investment um, to uh, develop export-oriented infrastructure, um, the idea being to allow Indian firms to uh, engage you know, more successfully with, with global markets. Um, so the incentives targeted first uh, the SEZ promoters themselves, the, the, the developers, um, with a number of you know tax concessions and uh, of different kinds. And it was the SEZ promoters who were then in charge of enticing firms, both national uh, Indian firms as well as foreign firms, to set up on these um, special or in these special zones. And of course, the firms too were promised, you know, very attractive conditions, you know, 100% uh, exemption on uh, taxes on profits for the first five years and um, 
followed by 50% um, over the next five to 10 years. So, um, you know, the, the, the kind of immediate goal of this policy was to, you know, attract uh, capital. And longer term goals, and, and these were the ones that were put forth, uh, were to increase, you know, India's uh, growth and, and, and create jobs and um, bring, you know, new technology and, and, and overall create, you know, linkage effects for the, you know, regional and local economies. Now, in terms of the, you know, the regional implications, uh, as you mentioned, it, it, it's a national act. And, and so the rules um, are supposed to apply uniformly across national territory. Um, the governance structure that's that's put in place is extremely centralized. The, the country is divided into these large zones with a, with a development commissioner. That's a that's a high level civil servant in charge of each of these zones. But in practice, uh, there, there has been a tremendous difference in the ways that state governments have, you know, implemented this, this policy. And not only in, in the way that they've implemented it, but, but also in their policy response to contestation. As you rightfully mentioned, this um, SEC's head policy is uh, quite hotly contested across the country. Almost every state where there are uh, SEZ projects, there are SEZ uh, protests. And um, and this is, a, I think, an important reminder that, you know, investment and production and any kind of economic activity always takes place in space. And so at some level, you know, the environment, the local environment in which the zone uh, will be set up um, uh, is comes under the the realm of subnational states, whether it be the the regional state or even the local you know municipal government. If it with regard to say for instance water supply and and, and drainage that kind of thing. Now some state governments have decided to to really you know push and 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 try to make their state attractive to SEZ promoters. Um, they've uh, they've for instance. Uh, put in place their own SEZ policies, kind of, you know, either sometimes even going further than the the national policy. Uh, in other cases, states have decided to um, to promote their own uh, zones because, in fact, the act, although the intention was to attract private capital, the act does uh, allow for, you know, state-run SEZs. And if you take an example of you know, Andhra Pradesh, which is the state that has the largest number of SEZ uh, proposals, um, more than half of the notified SEZs uh, are being promoted uh, by the, the state government, either directly or uh, in a joint venture with, um, you know, private sector actors. Um, so, so we see that there are variations in the ways uh, that that state governments, you know, try to facilitate SEZ development. Also, some states waive the development charges. That is all the, the charges involved with, you know, um, constructing roads up to the up to the zone and, and bringing energy and, and, and water and et cetera. Um, some states take up those, uh, you know, uh, those expenses uh, using, you know, public investment. Others uh, pass the charges on to the promoters. So that's that's an important difference and one that certainly plays um, into the, the choice of, of, you know, locating in this or that state. Um, also, with regard to labor, 
some states have declared SEZs essential services in in order to uh, to make um, uh, strike action illegal or at least uh, very difficult. And uh, and so you, with labor too, which is which is also a, a key factor in uh, in location. Um, here too, we see uh, quite a lot of variation among states. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks a lot for that. Now, in your final sort of substantive chapter, there's also a conclusion, which is chapter seven. But in, in chapter six, you, you examine a different scale. You examine here the urban scale, specifically Hyderabad. Now, I've only been to Hyderabad once. I just visited the university for a few days. And when you travel out of the city to the university, you travel through this yeah, gobsmackingly new city. This like, seems to have sprung up. All, all around you. I mean, it seems that when you speak to locals, they, they say that, yeah, it, 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 like this new, new, like sort of new city has basically been built. It's just a really short amount of time. And in your chapter, in, in this chapter, you're, what's really interesting is, is you're looking at how the state is interacting with many different other actors as sort of Hyderabad develops and Hyderabad grows. So I was wondering, could you first give us a little bit of background to Hyderabad? Like what, what are the salient processes there in its in its urban development? And then talk a little bit about these these interactions as well. Sure. Um, yeah, Hyderabad is, is, uh, is I think, a, a really compelling uh, case study uh, for, for many different reasons. Um, you're right that, that Hyderabad was really on the forefront of urban reforms in the in the second half of the 1990s. Um, and, and in order to, to sort of understand that, uh, it, it, it's absolutely essential to look uh, not at the municipal scale, but at the uh, state level, the regional state, um, because it can, it can be directly linked up to state level policies, um, especially, you know, industrial and, and economic development policies. Hyderabad was considered to be really a showcase for the state. And um, and these urban policies, you know, which which took the form of you know beautification and 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 street widening and um, and things like this were were very top down. Um, in fact, uh, Hyderabad uh, has uh, uh, has kind of a, a history of um, um, of not necessarily um, always having you know local governments in in place. Now, of course the the, um, the constitutional amendments of the 1990s, I'm thinking specifically the 74th the constitutional amendment, has made you know elections mandatory, and 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 since then Hyderabad has has done a a better job of organizing elections regularly. Um, but still, the the urban reforms of the 90s were were very top down, and um, in addition to these these I guess you know kind of a um, um, beautification and, and other uh, kind of superficial type of, of changes, there were some very substantive reforms with regard to service delivery models. And in the chapter, I, I talk about a few of those. Um, you know, uh, this this involves, uh, I mean, these are, these are actually very typical kind of uh, neoliberal type, neoliberal inspired policies, which involve um, delegating to the private sector um, certain you know, public erstwhile public services. Uh, in the case of Hyderabad, um, even tax collection was um, was outsourced to uh, to private um, to private companies. Um, this is for property taxes at in, in this at the municipal level, and and many other um, 
you know, public services uh, using, for instance, uh, you know, e-governance e uh, sort of policies. Um, I also looked at the example of healthcare, which, you know, um, is a little, maybe a little more problematic when it comes to privatization. Um, and uh, wh what we could see in, in that case is that, I mean, although maybe some of the, you know, the core um, personnel remained in, in the public sector, all the, you know, maintenance activities and security and other things were, uh, were um, given, you know, to private, uh, private uh, companies. And the you know the, the there were some problems with this with this and as 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 in other cities, um, but but again Hyderabad in in some respects became a model, uh, not necessarily with regard to uh, you know attempts to privatize or to uh, give to NGOs um, the responsibility of running health clinics, but a model uh, with regard, for instance, to um, uh, solid waste management and street cleaning, which were were largely outsourced, and the municipality saved a lot of money that way. And um, and um, with regard to solid waste, it became known as the as the Hyderabad model. Um, but but really, this is this is part of a of a larger kind of a movement in uh, in Andhra Pradesh in favor of, as you say, um, using private partnerships, public private partnerships. And uh, the area of the city you're referring to, um, the western suburbs around High Tech City, um, is another uh, quite you know impressive example of uh, of how you know state-led um, uh, initiatives uh, in partnership with with private uh, companies can you know dramatically transform uh, the landscape and also influence uh, to a degree the really the foundation of the the regional economy. Um, of course, this this kind of very city centric uh, kind of a, a growth strategy uh, does not uh, come without its own problems. Um, as has been pointed out with regard to to Andhra Pradesh, um, you know the the rural areas and, and the agricultural sector uh, have not received the, the same amount of attention from uh, policymakers, and and uh, in fact. Uh, um, really, you know, suffer from um, from from a deep a deep crisis. Um, also, again, uh, a lot of these decisions with regard to um, developing the the urban areas and uh, um, have 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 been very top down. Uh, this has uh, this has not really been something that local uh, elected officials have been involved with, and um, in fact, recently. There was a decision on the part of the state government to radically expand the the borders of uh, of the Hyderabad Municipal Corporation, and at the time the Hyderabad uh, corporators there there were 100 of them voted against this move, um, but the, this was a uh, this was uh, not taken into consideration and 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 Greater Hyderabad was was formed anyway, um, so. Um, so it's it, 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 it is an it is an interesting example that allows us to sort of examine different types of uh, of, of changes that are that are happening and different you know levels of, of reform as well. I guess it remains to be seen whether Greater Hyderabad will become a a, a political scale in its own right now that there are uh, elected officials and there's a municipal council you know at that uh, at that scale. Mm -hmm. I agree. I mean, Hyderabad is just a. a 
a fascinating case, a fascinating city that, that you can, I mean, you can, it's almost as if you can see see change happening in front of your eyes as well. It's, it's a really it's a really fascinating place, and I think it comes out a lot in this chapter. Um, we've sort of shot through your book, as is always the case with these podcasts, quite quickly. So I was wondering if there's anything you think that you would that I've I've not asked about, or that you would like to flag up to listeners that uh, that we've missed. Well, um, well, I think we 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 talked over um, quite a lot. I guess you know. I, again, I would just come back to the. I think the importance uh, when trying to sort of understand uh, the new, you know, what we call economic geographies in India, where uh, you know growth is taking place. Um, in order to, to 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 get a grasp on that, I I, I really think that uh, there needs to be attention to sort of you know the the long term historical. Kind of factors that uh, that influence you know these regional political economies and uh, and uh, there's a lot of emphasis on what's happening in in metropolitan regions um, but I think that that you would agree that, that there are also things happening in small and medium towns and and that kind of you know turn some of these ideas on on their head um, but uh, again there's the, the dynamics, the, the economic dynamics cannot be separated from the, the political dynamics. And uh, and partly what we see uh, are political strategies playing out in space. Mm-hmm. It's, a, yeah. it's, a, it's a good summation of of, uh, yeah, of of your central thesis. I mean, the, now, now your book's out. Uh, this book just came out this year. I suppose there's new projects which you're working on now or future projects that you have in mind. I was wondering if you'd like to tell us a little bit about what those are. Well, yeah, I do have several things uh, uh, going on. Um, one of these is a, is, um, a, a joint a research project looking at um, industrial policies in India and China and trying to, uh, again, with attention to scale, trying to see, you know, the, I guess, the, the dynamics taking place between uh, central and subnational states Um so that's a kind of comparative uh, project. And um, I'm also working on uh, the metropolitan scale, looking at economic development strategies at the scale of, of metropolitan regions. And um, by comparing, you know, say, Delhi and Chennai, trying to see to, to what extent these metropolitan regions may be emerging as a kind of a, a political space and not just a um, uh you know, uh, uh, I guess you'd say, you know, a, a, a relevant economic space. Wonderful. They both, they both sound really fascinating. So we'll keep an eye out for them in the future. Well, we've taken up quite a lot of your time. I'm sure you're very busy. So I'd like to thank you again for coming on the show. And thanks a lot for your book, which uh, I really enjoyed. And I'd like to recommend this to all our listeners as well. Thanks a lot, Ian. I'm, I'm, I was happy to have the opportunity to talk about the book. Thanks so much for listening to New Books in South Asian Studies. I've been your host, Ian Cook, and today we've been talking about the politics of economic restructuring in India by Lorraine Kennedy. I hope you enjoyed the show. I hope many of you are going to check out this wonderful book, and I hope you listen again next time. Ta-ra!